very warm welcome to the e-lounge. Are you a leader who aims to drive real growth for the people within your organization and at the same time deliver exceptional customer service? Then, if you are that leader, you definitely need to grab your chair in our next e-lounge. Our book on review this month is Culture Nearing, Building a Strong Business Culture in a Diverse Workforce that Delivers Obsessive Customer Service. Culture Nearing, penned by Ian Fur. Ian Fair is a senior serial entrepreneur, a founder of Sobe Group of Companies, and most recently, the Hatch Institute. The Institute is a coaching, consulting business that is helping business owners and leadership teams. You can expect an insightful discussion between the author Ian Fair and our COO, Mr. Sepo Hobe. It's about culture. It's about diversity and customer service. This e-lounge is one of our knowledge share platforms anchored on our values of learning and leadership. We do hope that you'll tune in, engage, and take away the knowledge from this great conversation. And always remember, those who desire to lead should read. Previously, one of my guests, when was asked, why do you believe in Africa so much? He said to me, it is all I have. That stayed with me for a very long time. My guest today is a firm believer that South Africa is all he has. And he believes in fixing it to the level where he's written a book. A book that deals with, in actual fact, if you have a faint heart, the first chapter is difficult to get through. But once you get through that, the beautiful part of the book appears. My guest today, Ian Fair, uh, famous for many, many things. Those of you who are old enough to remember the old Kmart stores, which eventually then became Jetmart, uh, that's the man behind the stores. Those of you who have just done their nails or did something that has to do with beauty in the last few uh, days wouldn't have, at some point in time, would have touched uh, the brand Sobe. He's sold the company now and he's on to his new endeavor. And today he's here to share um, his experiences of so many years. He'll tell me a lot about that. Welcome here. Hi, Tepo. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, Ian... Let's get right to it. <laughs> Who is Ian Fay? You know, we, we know the Sobe brand, you know, Kmart, you know, a lot of things, and uh, you are a great voice in a lot of other spaces, but who is Ian Fay? Okay, well, I think that, that's an interesting question. It takes me all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> uh, um, I, I was born, just, just a very brief history, I was born in Thunderbale Park. Okay. Yeah, just south of Johannesburg. Um, and people say to me, why were you born there? You know, <laughs> and, uh, it's a kind of a tough question. So I, th I said, because I wanted to be close to my mother. You know, she, she happened to be there at the time. Anyway, I, I was born there. My father was one of the founding directors of Russell Furnishes. And, uh, and he moved to Joburg to join Russell's when I was about four years old. And then they sent me off to a Jewish school. Because I'm Jewish, they send me to a Jewish school. The problem with going to a Jewish school is that you, you don't meet anyone else there. It's a very isolated 
sort of bubble of isolation, really. And so I, I grew up with all these people who were the same as me, with the same interests, the same religion, the same beliefs. And uh, the problem there is that the powers that be in a school like that can manipulate the mind. And I was led to believe that we, the Jews, were the chosen people of God. So I thought, well, that's cool, uh, nice that we got chosen. I'm not quite sure why or how, but that's what we started to believe, and I grew up like that. And uh, then by the time I left school, I went into the army for my compulsory military service back in the 70s, and I met another group of people there uh, that I'd never met before, which is white Afrikaans Christian males. And uh, I came into the army believing that I was chosen by God, and I can tell you for sure that they didn't think so. And uh, it, was, it was quite challenging. In fact, they told me that you know, we were the lowest of the low. And so I, I had a problem. And then they told me not only that, but they were the chosen people of God. And God had chosen them to come to the southern part of Africa and to fix it up and, and to make sure that the whites protect themselves from the black people. And so I had a big dilemma there. You know, I was 17 and a half years old. I had no idea. And, and, and uh, I had to make, you know, I had to ask some difficult questions like, who's doing the choosing here? And, and why is he so confused? Uh, and, you know, I realized at the time a very powerful lesson that there is no one group superior or inferior to another. We're all just different. And the sooner we learn to accept and respect and tolerate our differences, the better off our country would be. And that is a, a principle that I have lived with ever since. So that's where I, I got my first taste of understanding superiority and inferiority. And then I successfully dropped out of university uh, in my second year. That really wasn't for me. And I went uh, into the music business. And, and I worked for a record company called Gallo Records for about a year until my brother comes back one day from America and he says to me, listen, I've seen this business in America called Kmart. And he said, it's a huge, big departmental discount business and we need to open up a Kmart in South Africa. He's about 10 years older than me. I was 22 years old at the time. No experience in business. I knew nothing about retailing or discounting or department stores. And then he said, but we have to aim it at the black market because this is where the opportunity lies. And I, and I knew even less about the black market. <laughs> yeah, before we even get there, and, and I, I, for me, that, that what's intriguing about your history and the book as I went through it, the entrepreneurial spirit, I can see it. You know, your father being the founder of, what do they call it, of Russell's or one of the founding directors. Mm. I can see that. But a lot of people who grew up sheltered, you know, you were sheltered first from that end of being Jewish and um, then being white. And then mm. there's all of that. And then being from Fandel Bay Park. Because that also is another level of shelter altogether. <laughs> now, and therefore if you're from Fandel Bay Park, in you runs the water of the torrent uh, uh, Val River. So it can be temperamental and, <laughs> and it's unpredictable. <laughs> now you go into business. Mm. And into business in a space that you know very little about. Nothing. Yeah, absolutely nothing. So the, the first slap in the face is you go to the army. And yes. when you get to the army, 
I like the phrase you use in the book. Hmm. They tell you you are you are lower than what? Lower <laughs> than shark shit. <laughs> not lower than shark shit. I've been trying to find something lower than shark shit. I've never been able to find anything in the world lower than shark shit. Yes. So now that happens and it's the first, maybe the awakening. Yeah. Because they, they, there's, there's what they call it, my last guest spoke about, you know, first um, the, the, the purging and then you speak about the awakening and then, um, you know, the union, you know, as you look at it from a religious perspective. But that's the first bit of the awakening, which starts yeah, the purging. Yeah, right, exactly. Then you start Kmart mm. with your brother. Yes. That is a story and a half. That finds you sitting around in Shebins in Soweto. <laughs> so I've been, I was thrown into the deep end there, really. I was still very young and naive. And I think that entrepreneurial spirit, spirit which ran right through our family, all, all of my, my brothers and my father, all entrepreneurs. But, you know, and it was a bit naive. I really was naive at the time. I didn't know anything. Um, I even called the business Kmart. I didn't know anything about trademarks and registrations. Uh, and even worse, I used their logo, uh, you know, which would come back to haunt me sometime later, about 12 years when they took us to court, Kmart in America. But, but the point was that I was thrust into this thing, and I was the only white person there. My older brother was, was like the financier of the business. He didn't actually work in the business. He was the financier, and, and, and he brought a lot of expertise, but he, he didn't physically work there with me. So I was the only, I was the lone white boy there. Uh, all the staff were black people, and all the customers were black. And so we opened it with a hell of a, a bang, because my brother said to me, listen, we have to cut the prices to get people in. And I said, okay. And I went and I cut the prices lower than anyone had ever seen any prices. And half of Gauteng arrived. <laughs> I remember those catalogs. Yeah. Yes. It was a mayhem in the house when the when the Kmart catalog came out. You know, I knew my, you know, my mother brought this thing and she wanted to check it out and everything else. And and, and people came. And of course, you must remember we opened in 1976. We were supposed to open, believe it or not, in June 1976. And because of the uprisings, we we postponed it for a few weeks, and then we opened up in July. And uh, there were so many people that came to the opening of that store that the police thought it was another uprising. But now in the middle of the CBD, so they started panicking. You know, this is right in town there, in, in Pritchard Street. And so, so uh, they, they came with the, the hippos. You know, I'm, I'm sure you remember yeah, the hippos, the hippos, the dogs, the whole lot. And uh, we took them, it took us quite a while to convince them this was not an uprising, it was a, it was a store opening. <laughs> and eventually they got the queue sorted out and it was just an unbelievable experience. And I, I really, and I had to learn by the seat of my pants. And, and I was young, I was white, I was inexperienced. So I had zero credibility with my staff, nothing. In the middle of all of that. Yes. Something that you, at that point in time, in hindsight, you look at it, you know, in hindsight, I'm also a genius, but um, it, in, in hindsight, something at that point in time looked like you were being betrayed. One of your guys says something important to you before you start this big journey. Yeah. Yes. Right, so that was a very interesting story. So, of course, you know that in those days, just in the 70s, a little bit after we opened it, a little while later, 
Um, I had identified a guy by the name of Ralph Mamela, and he was a, a supervisor, and I was, I was trying to grow him into, a, into the store manager at some point. You must remember there were no black managers allowed in white areas at that time. So I wanted to, him to be our manager. And then at the same time, part of the protest, of the struggle protest at the time, was the consumer boycotts. So, the consumer boycotts. Yeah, so they were trying to, to get black people to stop shopping in white-owned businesses, and which was very effective, extremely effective. Right? And so one day one of our staff comes to me and says, listen, you know, one of our people is there out in the streets handing out pamphlets promoting a boycott of white-owned stores, which is us. So our own staff member was boycotting us, his own company. And so I, I freaked out completely. <laughs> I didn't understand exactly why, you know, consumer boycotts. I was still a bit young and naive. I didn't understand what the whole thing was about. And I just freaked and I called him in and started screaming and shouting at him. And then he said to me, and afterwards he, he was very calm, very calm. He said, you know what, Ian, I appreciate everything that you've done. And I appreciate the fact that you've made me a supervisor and that you believe in me. But I must tell you one thing. Every day when I go home, and sometimes when I come in to work, I'm harassed by the police for some or other ridiculous apartheid law. And uh, it's not, I can't live like this. So if you have to ask me to make a choice, I must choose freedom first and work second. And that was a hell of a powerful thing for me, and it really woke me up. And I realized that day that I needed to change my entire mindset about what was going on, and that I could no longer ignore the socio-political environment in which our staff were working and living. So I said to Ralph, I said, Ralph, I'm not going to fire you. He thought I was going to fire him straight. I said, I'm not going to fire you. In fact, the opposite. I want you to become my mentor. I want you to teach me everything there was to know about South Africa. And he was quietly, because nobody knew in those days, he was quietly an ANC member himself. And he said, OK, I'll take you into the townships. Come and let's learn there. Ian, one of the things that was very intriguing to mm. me, and at 22, I mean, I remember when I grew up, probably by the time I was 11 or 12, yes. I understood where we were as a country. And, you know, the social economy, probably because I lived the life. Yes. Um, how sheltered, like really, you know, I, I keep on hearing about this, you know, why people were very sheltered from the truth of apartheid. How sheltered is sheltered? Extremely, extremely sheltered. When I say, I mean, what I learned when I went into Soweto and I went to the Shabins and I went to Ralph's home and I met his family and I saw how they lived, I realized that there's another country in our own country. I had never dreamed that there was anything like that. Our exposure to black people in, in, in Johannesburg at the time was virtually zero and was limited to the domestic worker and the gardener. And that was it. I, I never met anyone else. Never. And so 
the average person, especially of my age at that time, we were so sheltered and we were privileged and so privileged, but, but we just knew nothing. We didn't understand what apartheid was. We heard about a little bit about this thing, but it didn't teach us in school. Our history book, I remember very specifically, because I went back afterwards later when I was older and I got hold of the history book that we used in the 70s. They had two paragraphs on apartheid, two paragraphs in the whole of the history book on apartheid, which was just some very useless information. And so I realized that the average white person in South Africa was horribly hidden from the truth. And, and, in, and in that way, they too were victims because they just didn't know. And so when you, you know, and then I decided to study apartheid and I really went into great depth and I worked with a lot of people and I had, I worked with Azapo because the leader of Azapo, a guy by the name of Laibon Mabasa, I'm sure you've heard of him, he came to work for us. He, he was working for us because he had just been released from prison. He was banned from, from public gatherings. And so he came there. And he was introduced to me by one of my colleagues by the name of Latsatsi Mosala. I don't know if you ever remember Latsatsi yes, Mosala. He was murdered some time ago. Yes. And he was, was my colleague at the time. And he brought Laibon in. And so these guys were teaching me about black consciousness and about Steve Biko. And so I was learning and I was learning and I was learning and absorbing. And then I could see that there was such huge manipulation of the mind. Because, because black consciousness was saying, if we, after 300 years, if you keep telling people that they are inferior, they will eventually start believing it. And, and so I, I started to realize that I had to change my own mindset and how I managed people in the business and to take into account all of the external factors that were impacting on people in the organization, which I'm still doing today because there's a lot of it going on. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, this yeah. is interesting to me because, I, you know, I remember in, in early 2020, yes. um, and you would say what would have happened in 2020, when the pandemic hit, there's a new breed of people who are sheltered from, it's not the ills of apartheid, but the poverty that is out there. I remember I was sitting in one of our, you know, estate directors mm -hmm. meeting, and there was this, this panic that people are going to come in taxis, and therefore in those taxis there's going to be uh, infections about COVID and yes, all sorts of other things. And, yes. and I found it to be very strange because now it's no more a black-white thing. It's an us and them type thing. Now, in, in, in the business that you've started now and mm. you're now pursuing uh, quite heavily and the businesses, how much do you find that now it's now being able to educate people about the, the true poverty that is out there? Yeah, look, I, I think people still struggle with it a little bit, the white people in particular, to, to believe how bad it really is. But there's certainly a bit of an opening of the mind uh, to, to, to listen to the stories. But I, I spend a lot of time in my work, and I always have throughout my working career, educating, particularly white people, about what actually happened in apartheid. Because there were many laws there that the average white person had no idea. You know, I mean, they, they didn't understand the impact of, of the 
of the Native Land Act of 1913 and, and the Bantu Education Act of 1953. And so I, I explained these things to them, you know, that, that Hendrik Verwoerd stood up in Parliament and said there is no reason to be educating black people above the level of labourer and therefore we don't need to teach them maths or science. And with one stroke of a legalised pen, took away the education and with it the opportunity to compete in the economy of South Africa, took away their citizenship. They weren't people living in South Africa were not officially South African. They were, they were citizens of Puputatwana and all these places. So, so the Bantu stands. And, yeah. and so I learned that and I decided very important to share that information with people. And it's in the book but, there as well. But Ian, you were nearly beaten up in breads. You're a brave man. You go to Brits and go and teach me. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit yeah, about that story. Stupid and brave, yeah. You know, we. <laughs> um, if we have a bit of time, I can no, tell you that <laughs> that exercise of the blue red exercise, yes. yeah, because that's a very powerful story. We, we have done. Okay. Tell us a little bit about okay. the the, the, right. the story in Brits because that that story in Brits is very powerful in in its sense, but. You know, before you got there and you, you know, you were trying to change the bits and pieces, yes. um, it was difficult before you got to, to the part where you were now doing the exercises. Right. So there are two exercises. The one was, was what happened in Brits, but there's another exercise which I'd like to share very quickly yes. with you, which I think has been powerful, was the blue-red exercise. Yes. I think it's also in the book. It's in the book. And, and, and that really helped people to open their minds. So what I would do, just very briefly, is I would manipulate a, a workshop into two groups, people that liked red and people who liked blue. And then I put up a little slide to say that there's, there's a personality difference between people who like red and blue. I give them this little questionnaire to fill out. But the points are manipulated. So that whatever the red people answered didn't matter. They, were, they got the low scores. Yeah. And the blues were going to get to high school. And immediately, the slide says blue people are clever, they are patient, they are innovative, they are entrepreneurial, they are just wonderful. Oh, they're beautiful people. The red people, the red people are terrible. They are horrible people. They're argumentative. They're always angry. They complain a lot, etc., etc. So immediately, the red people start complaining. They say, this is rubbish. I said, well, you see. You're complaining already. We haven't even started. <laughs> so I'm just reinforcing the whole thing. And, and then, you know, over and over, I give them a puzzle to do. The blue puzzle is simple. You can do it in two minutes. The red puzzle, you'll never get it right. It's impossible. And so the, the, the reds, they're starting to believe now themselves that the blues are better than the reds. And we reinforce that message over and over again. And then we get to the tea break. And there's two tables. I said, now the, the reds must go to the red table. Blues must have tea at the blue table. The blue table, it looks like a big function. There's, there's a cake and biscuits <laughs> and, 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 and cups and beautiful, magnificent china and everything. The red table's got nothing. It's no tablecloth and just polystyrene cups with tea that's already been poured and cold. Uh, and so... The red people get very angry, and they now they're going to the blue table and they say, "Listen, we want your we want your food." And it sounds like South Africa. Well, exactly, <laughs> we want your food, and then the blue people are defending that. They push yeah. them away. They say, "No, no, 
This is our time. <laughs> and so we, we go on and on and on. And eventually, at the end of it all, I, I then say to them, listen, this has been a, a hoax. It's not real. Uh, I've just been making it all up. And they get very angry. Um, and the one guy nearly smacked me. with the AWB guy he got very angry. And, and I said to them, you know, if I've been able in a matter of two to three hours to create in this room a superior group and an inferior group, so much so that the people in the superior group who had friends in the inferior group was telling them things like, I always knew you were like this, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. And I said, if I was able to create that superiority, inferiority perception in a two to three hour session, can you imagine what happened in South Africa over 300 years? Ian, you know, this, I kept on looking through the book and looking through the book and I'm going, but it, this book is about leadership. And I've intentionally left the name of the book out of the conversation because it is the intriguing name of the book that eventually puts everything together. But it's, you're a 22-year-old, you discover all of these things. At, that, at what point in time do you discover this magical formula of purpose and values? Yeah. It's interesting because I can't remember exactly when that was, but, but as I went through my various uh, entrepreneurial ventures, from, you know, from Kmart all the way through, because I started a race relations consultancy in, 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 in Labor Link in 1991, and, and so as I went, I was starting to develop and realize the importance of culture in the business and that everybody had to feel a sense of belonging. That was the fundamental thing. If people do not feel that they belong, it's unlikely that they're going to deliver you know, great service to the customers. And so that was the realization, the link between culture and service. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to deliver service. That's why we're in business. Be there for our customers. That's always our purpose. Purpose can never be about money. Money is always the result. It's never the purpose. Purpose is always to do with customers. So if you're going to deliver great service to the customers, you have to create an environment which is conducive to that. If people are not happy, if, if they don't feel that they, they belong, if they don't feel they're treated with respect and dignity and, and equality, how would they then go and serve customers? With what's going to motivate that? So I realized that early on, and then I said, right, we're going to work on culture. Culture is everything. If we get the culture right, then we can get the service right. And so that's, that's built up over time. But Ian, as you're consulting now, I mean, this is a, a hard sell. You, yes. you know traditional businesses money first, people second, or even people will come after the assets and the, what do they call it? <laughs> yes. And after they've counted everything else. Right. And as you showed in one of those spreadsheets, um, you know, the, 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 the personal cost is counted between rent and, <laughs> and something else. It's a, That's it's right. a cost that sits there. Yes. And the new paradigm of being able to see the people as the assets, yes. it's a big change in leadership. I it, mean, this book is huge. about leadership. Absolutely. And, and it's a huge change because... Traditionally, people have always been perceived as a cost burden. You know, salaries. As you say, salaries are on, on the expense column in between rent and stationery. So it's like saying people are nothing more than a pencil 
or, right. a, or a staple or whatever it is. It's just a cost. So when you're treating people as if they're cost burdens, you shouldn't be surprised that they don't want to go out there and serve and try and help you make money for yourself as a shareholder. You know, people don't ever come to work thinking about, I'm here today to make money for my shareholders. <laughs> I can tell you that's not the case for sure. So, so if, you know, if we want to, to start seeing them to feel that their contribution is valued, they must be seen as assets. And that's why I always say, put people first and the profit will follow. But when you're focused on the profit and you're treating people as a cost burden, then you're, not, then you're going to struggle to get the productivity, the service, and all the other things that you need to be successful in business. There's then the part where you say, fine, you can build the culture, but the leader must develop first. And that's an important issue, Ian, because we, we tend to forget the leader, the person who must now manage this culture and champion it. Um, the, 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 you know, you, you refer to them as cultureers. You know, the person who drives this, what do they call it, this value proposition. Now, but there are things that that leader must get over first and in their self-development. And, 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 and it's quite a, you've turned the issue on its head. Because now suddenly you're, you're saying, yeah, I want you, uh, just like in ISO, to be leading this thing from the top, but mm. you have to change first. Definitely. How much pushback do you find in that? But before we get there, let's talk about this change that you believe, that, that we actually, you know, truly in the book you say, if you don't sort out these things, you know, things like the blockers. Yes. yes. Right. Okay. So what, what happens is, you know, we, we always go back to race relations and racial polarization because that is, in my view, and not everyone else's view, but in my view, racial polarization is the number one challenge we have in South Africa and will be for some time still. So we are asking white managers, mostly white managers, obviously that's changing a bit now, but predominantly we still have white managers at the top in, in the economy right now. We're asking white managers who come from this polarized and, and uh, you know, this polarized background of privilege and of all of the things that have been in their psyche and their unconscious biases. And we're asking them to go and transform their companies. Transform your company. Transform the people. But we forget to ask them to transform themselves because they are the problem. The leader is the problem. If they haven't been able to identify their blockers, their unconscious bias, their you know, the, the, the prejudices, the stereotypes, and all of those things, if they haven't been able to do that, how on earth can they transform other people? They don't have the credibility. So we always say that the leadership should have the moral authority to lead. You don't have a structural or power-based authority. You have to earn the right and the respect of your people. You can't just say, I am your boss, you must do what I say. Well, you can do that, but it doesn't work because then you use fear and intimidation to try and motivate people. Whereas if you have the moral authority to lead, you are trusted and respected, and you have shown the ability to change yourself first before you go out and change anyone else, then you have a chance. You know, I, I heard a fantastic saying recently um, that said, yesterday I thought I was clever. So I tried to change other people. 
But today I became wise and I tried to change myself. But Ian, on, on, on that front, and, and, and I, I, I hear you saying that they're, they're the white managers, but I found that the, the damage that has also occurred, um, the, the black leadership, they depart from a position of, okay, if Ian has to report to me, he's probably going to have his prejudices, so therefore I will, you know. And, and right from the get-go, the fight has already started. The guy hasn't arrived in there, he's already asked, how many white people do I have, this and that, and this. So th there's mm. also that transformation that needs to occur for people exactly. to let go of their inferiority complex. Exactly. And that's a huge element of, of the things that, you know, that Steve Beaker was saying right from the beginning, is that we have to let go, we have to overcome that, that inferiority complex. And it happens. I mean, even people like Desmond Tutu, you know, he himself acknowledged that he would not go to a black doctor, he would only go to a white doctor. He, he himself said that. You know, and, and, and it just shows you that this thing, that this uh, mind manipulation and the separation and the division and the inferiority, superiority complexes and the privilege, etc., etc., all of those things run very deeply in, in the, into our psyche. And we need to address those. And that's why this book is very largely about those uncomfortable conversations that we need to have that expose the real problems. I, I get concerned when people say to me, but hang on a second, you know, all this history stuff, can't we just put it behind us? <laughs> and I'm so tired of hearing about apartheid and all the bad stuff that happened, you know. It wasn't me, I wasn't there, you know. Uh, and now, now I'm suffering, I'm a young white man, I'm suffering as... This is reverse racism. BEE is now blocking me from being appointed. And, and, and I say to them, you know, you may not have been a perpetrator, but, my, but there's one thing for sure is that you were a beneficiary. You were the beneficiary. So you need to understand that compromise is required. And so we, we, we just really have to work very, very hard to focus on why we have so many differences rather than sweeping the differences under the carpet, hoping that they go away some magically somehow, and then just get on with the future. Why can't we just find things that we have in common? Yes, well, there must be one or two things that we have in common. But the reality is what separates us is our life experience. And th those life experiences need to be addressed, they need to be spoken about, and people need to understand. Like, for example, if I can give you a quick example, one of the things that white people say a lot in South Africa is, I'm not a racist. I don't see color. I don't see color. <laughs> I, I, I treat everybody the same. Now, from that person's perspective, they're not saying anything that's bad. They think it's, there's no, no ill intention there. But the black person listening to that say, what do you mean you don't see color? Are you blind? <laughs> Here I am. Look at me. You know, I'm different to you. And, and uh, it, it's not, you know, you're disrespecting my life experience. My whole life has been determined by my color. You're telling me you don't even see my color. How can you treat us all the same? We're not the same, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we're having, you know, th these conversations are going on all the time. And the, the people are not realizing how offensive it is to other people. And then when they learn about it, then they say, okay, now I understand. 
So maybe it's time that I change rather than trying to make other people change. Yeah, and a man who says that to me is like a man who says, I'm not going to make this a long meeting. <laughs> you guarantee three hours later you're going to be sitting there. But <laughs> Yeah, very good. Culture, culture-driven leadership. Mm. First and foremost, let's go back to the name of the book. Yeah. Culture-nearing. Yes. So we are connected on LinkedIn, and one of the days, just after you had launched the book, you had a, a webinar, and mm. I see this line, culture-nearing, and I'm going, culture-nearing? <laughs> who, who could go? That, this is too far. Like, combining engineering and culture into one way. Culture-nearing, how did you come up with that name? Well, you know, I've been thinking about the name for culture, building a culture, and I could never really come up with it. At Sorbet, we called it the soul of Sorbet. Uh, and, you know, so we gave it a name. But, but when I started the Hatch Institute, I realized that we needed to give it a name to make it unique and, and different. And quite frankly, it was very simple. I was uh, having breakfast with my wife in, in the Cape one day, and I was talking to her, and I said, please help me, you know. We've got to find a name for culture. And then we were talking, chatting, and somewhere in between the scrambled eggs and the coffee, <laughs> I, I came up, I said, listen, engineering a culture, culture-nearing. And then she said, that's it. And, and, that, yeah, and that, that's how it started, just like that. But at that point in time, you had already developed this philosophy, yeah. culture-driven leadership. And, and, and culture-driven leadership, it's, it's a, I'd always say to you, as an engineer, you, you, you are asking me to go to the softer side. Show me how to calculate how quickly a train goes around the corner. I'll show it to you. But <laughs> that's the hard stuff. That's the core of my business. Right. Um, but now you're starting to mix things that don't mix. And uh, what are we talking of? Culture-driven leadership. Yeah, it's, it's just the, the fact that we cannot any longer continue to use the old traditional leadership styles. They have not worked for many, many years, and we cannot keep trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So, so I, I came to the conclusion that if we take the old traditional power-based leadership that, that is a top-down, heavy-handed approach that says, I am your boss, you must respect me, compared to the culture-driven leadership that says, I'm all about people, people first. So I'm going to nurture and lift from the bottom, right, and, and put people first. Part of culture-driven leadership is servant leadership, which, which is you know, a more common term. But servant leadership is exactly that, serving the people who are serving the people. And I've always believed in that, is that if you want your staff to go out there and serve your customers to the best of their ability, you need to serve the staff yourself first as the leader. And that is a very different paradigm for most leaders. They cannot get their heads around how you can be both a, a leader and a servant at the same time. And, and, and it, but you can, you can. You just need to change your perception, put people first, and then watch them grow. Then how do we remap this thing? Because most leaders by their nature and business, they got there because they themselves are actually eye specialists. They, they, it has been, they've been driven by the desire for the person to be able to be there. 
the ego, the everything else. And, and, and you, you can spot it from far as you walk through a place. Um, now, you, you're not preaching to the converted here. You, <laughs> your, the, your, your, your pews are empty here. So <laughs> there's no choir to sing with you. So and at one point in time, do we remap this thing? Because I, and that, that, as I, I was going through the book and, you know, learning about the eye specialist, you know, mm. the ego and all of that, mm. I thought, but a lot of what we do is, and in actual fact, that one youngster that is, you know, driven and is, um, it's the one that we promote. And, and as we promote that, we reinforce the ego. And the ego, the, the more and more he goes up from driving and all sorts of other things. And we're not saying you shouldn't work hard. Yeah. I'm simply saying, how do we remap that for people to be able to understand? Yeah. You know, you walk into my office and people ask me, what do you do? I said, oh, no, I work for these people. They tell me what to do. Um, because they come into my office, they ask me questions, and I, I deal with those. And that's what I do. It's, it's like, uh, if I'm not attending to them, what am I attending to? Yes, but but it it's, it it takes some some doing, and and yeah. I want to have probably look at a formula where we are able. And I'm an engineer; I'm always looking for a formula. <laughs> so, yeah, right. So, and it's not as simple as that, I know. But it's, yeah. could we find a, between the balance of the ego, the eye specialist, and um, start embedding this culture quite early, especially in the manner in which we, de we develop our leadership academies. Right. I, th I think it goes all the way back to the basic principle of why do you come to work in the first place? And the basic principle there is most people think it's uh, I come to work to make money, uh, to earn the salary. It's all about me. It's I, I, I. That's why we call it an I specialist. It's a person who only thinks about themselves. As opposed to what the real purpose of work is, is to serve. To serve your customers, to serve other people. And so that is a very important paradigm shift that needs to take place right up front. So when I, at Sorbet, for example, I did the induction training for every single person that came through the Sorbet business, over 3,000 people. I did that training myself. So I, I would spend a day with them, a full day, just explaining to them the purpose of work and the, and the principles and the values and, and all of those things so that they understood that when they came to work, they came to serve. And if they served well, they would make the money. So that the golden rule was always service first, reward second. You get your reward. But unfortunately, South Africa is a community or a country of individual eye specialists. We, we, we have a very strong individual, I call it rugged individualism uh, in, in, in this country. And the, the greed is almost uncontrollable here. And if you look at government and corruption and all that, it's about me. What can I get out of this rather than what can I put into it? And you can see the people are saying, you can't keep taking for yourself without delivering the service. And so it, it's that, it, that whole perception and that mindset has perpetuated itself over the years. It's all about me. I must take what I can get. So it's hard, but I believe that at Sorbet we were able to largely convince people that they were there for the purpose of serving others. And when they did that well, then they would get the reward. And if I look back now, that principle or that paradigm, together with the attitude of our people, was the success factor that allowed us to grow 
to 225 uh, franchise athletes. Ian, you've had a point at which you have to get rid of your best performers. But most leaders suffer from what's called the digging hole paradox. So the question is very simple. If I have to dig 20 meters deep, 20, meet, 20 meters you know, in length, yeah. one meter deep, yeah. I've got three guys. The one digs 10 meters, the other two in between them, they share the other 10 meters. Yeah. Who do you promote? <laughs> okay, so when you're talking about promotion, it's often miscalculated because we often believe that the best worker will make the best manager. And that is not the case. We have, you know, I've learned many lessons, many, many bitter, bitter lessons over the years that the best worker or the best employee or the most driven employee will make the best manager. And that is not the case. Because people who are, who are often, and it's not, this is a bit of a generalization, but it doesn't apply all the time, obviously. But people who are only focused on themselves very seldom make great leaders. They, because the way to, to, to be a good leader is to inspire other people. You know, I used to often get asked, how did you motivate 3,000 people at Sorbe? How did you manage across the whole country? And I'd say to them, you know, it's not, I didn't motivate any of them, actually, quite frankly, because people have to motivate themselves. But what I tried to do was I tried to inspire them to motivate themselves. And that's what leaders need to understand is that you, your role is to inspire. Inspire people to, you know, the best leaders in the world are those that, that have inspired others to follow them to places they would never have gone by themselves. Inspire them to be better than they ever thought they could. So, so that is the kind of leader we're looking for, a person who can inspire others to, to be great. But if it's only about themselves and if they're only eye specialists, they will never be successful leaders, in my view. And I've seen it over and over and over again. The best leaders are those that put people first and profits and the very narrow profit objective is the result. It's never the purpose. But we've built a country on eye specialists. And now you're asking us to remap. Yes. And, 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 <laughs> and, and rethink what we, we've been doing. And, and, and one of the, the, the most complicated thing about mm. eye specialists and, you know, having, you know, probably one, I was one at some point in time. Um, and I'm still going through the purging phase of getting rid of, you know, I want, I want. But um, the more yes. and more I go higher into organizations, the more I get to realize that it's got to be about the people. And the more I, you know, I found my passion in growing people, then I got to realize that now you've got to change. And, 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 but it's not a very easy pivot because growing people is not a, a, a it's not natural to us. Now, one of the things that you, you become very uncomfortable about as what they call it, as an eye specialist, um, is taking feedback. Now, it's one of those things, then, and then we will have to talk about, you know, if we were to talk about creating a, 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 a place of safety for the employees, we also have to talk about the leader who has to take the bad feedback. And, and, and your journey through that in creating, you know, you've now developed the values, you are clear about self-development, and the culture-driven logic is developed and, and it's there. But then you get to be able to realize that there's this bit 
that is there. And then when you're dealing with eye specialists, that's a big issue. And, and you know, if we talk a little bit about that. Right. So, so you know, you spoke earlier on about the blockers. Yes. One of the big blockers is ego uh, and, uh, you know, and, and self-doubt and insecurity and stuff like that. So we, if we have an eye specialist, they will always suffer very badly from ego issues. They don't like to, to hear the bad news about themselves, so they, they rather deflect that. So, now, if you're going to be a serious leader of people and you're going to earn that moral authority to lead, there are a number of the things that you have to do, and one of them is creating a place of safety in which people can feel free to speak. But it's no good if you, put a, if you invite people to speak but you don't listen to what they say or you retaliate or you intimidate or you victimize somebody for speaking up, and then obviously they're never going to do that again. So we, we have to create a place of safety. We have to show a genuine concern for the well-being of our people, for their health, physical health, psychological health, financial health. Are you okay? You know, you are a human being and I'm concerned about you as a human as much as I am about you as an employee. So yes, I want you to be productive but I also want to make sure that you're okay and that you're doing fine. So I'm going to spend time talking to you and finding out and giving advice where I can and helping with where I can. I also want to make sure that I show a very strong commitment to your personal growth and development and your training and your, and your sort of upliftment as an individual. I also want to make sure that I have created a sense of belonging and common purpose where everybody comes to work for the same reason. Everyone must come to work for the same reason, and that is to serve, not to make money. As soon as money becomes the focus, the service will drop because we are focusing on the wrong things. We're trying to cut costs. We're trying to do this. We're trying to do that. We, start, we take off all of our reps off the country because we want to bring the cost down, and then we, our sales go for a dime. And, and so we, we're doing all the wrong things when we focus only on the money. So it's, it's that perception that we have to, to stop to say, this is not about me. It's not about me. I need to encourage other people to want to be great and to perform well. And then I'll get my reward at the end of the day. You know, I'm not saying money is not important. Money, of course, is important to all of us. We all want to be self-sustainable and we want to live a reasonable lifestyle. But it's not the purpose. It's the reward. The purpose is to serve. That's why we're there. We are there to serve other people. And that change, the change that needs to take place in that paradigm must start from inside. Ian, you're a brave man. I mean, even some of the, the, the logic that you had used about complaints and all sorts of other things, and well, I'll get to that when we start talking about you know, the obsession with, with customer service. But the question that probably is sitting out there with a lot of leaders that are looking at us now, they're saying, mm. okay, if I were to allow this, you know, the, the, the feedback, what stops it from being a complaint fest? Right. What stops it from just being us spiraling down further and further? The more bad I hear, the more yeah. I react badly, and the more, uh, you know, the, the people react badly. So what, what stops it from being a... A, a moon fest. Right. Okay. So, so people are afraid of that. Obviously, like, you know, leaders don't yeah. like that. So, but but at the same time, if you don't inv invite feedback, sorry, if you don't invite feedback, what are you going to have? You you're going to have the same thing. Nothing changes. Yeah. 
So, let me tell you a story. Um, I had one franchisee, she came to me one day and she said, you know, Ian, all my staff are moaning and groaning and complaining. They're giving me trouble every day. I said, all of them. She said, all of them. I said, how many have you got? She said, 15. I said, you got 15 people all moaning all the time. She said, yes, what can I do? I said, I've got the solution for you, please. I want you to run to the nearest toilet, okay? Don't, don't walk, run, because it's urgent. Go there. Look for a mirror. Yeah? Look in the mirror. Identify the person standing there. Raise your arms in a victory salute and say, I have discovered the enemy and she is me. When we don't want to know, when we don't want to get the feedback, all we're doing is we're perpetuating the same problem over and over again of this, of this perception that there's no problem. You, you know, what happens is you ask a manager, how are things going in your department? It's just fine. Everything's fine. Why? Because nobody's speaking. Nobody's raising the issues, so she thinks it's fine. You go and ask them, she say, no, this is the worst manager in the world. But we're too scared to speak to or him. So if you don't find out, you'll never know what you have to change. People are always talking, and I say, you can never learn when you speak. You can't learn when you speak. You can only learn when you're listening. Listen to what the people say, and then you can know what needs to change. And it's normally you. You know, an egg, take an egg. When you break the egg from the outside, when you're breaking, you're making an egg, right? You break the egg from the outside, life ends. That little chicken that was, it could have been there is now on the piece of toast. It's not, not, that's it, life ends for that chicken. But yet when the egg is broken from the inside, life begins. And that little chick comes out, right? So we always say, change always happens from the inside. Inside your mind, inside your heart. We need people in this country to shift their mindsets from this overwhelming negativity and to start creating more hope for the future. Leaders must start saying to themselves, if I can show my ability to change my own mindset, Hopefully, I will inspire others to do the same. And even if it's one mindset at a time, that we can start shifting from this hugely negative environment that we are living in right now. That's why I, I, I never give up hope, because even if I can transform one person at a time, I'm, that's, that's, that's a mission that, that I need to do. Ian, you said it clearly in the book. Um, you know, in culture-nearing, there's a time factor to it. Yeah. So it, it's not that it's, it's a quick fix. Yes. Now, I've got shareholders. Mm. And those shareholders, are, they're looking for, you know, outcomes. They're looking yes. for profits. They're looking, looking for, for returns. Uh, for, for returns. And, and mm. you sit in there and telling me, uh, I must create the place of safety. I've created the place of safety. I've listened. Okay. <laughs> now that I've listened and we've... I almost feel like there's just we've just hit that chaos stage of what do they call it? Yes. But there there are phases to building a what do they call it a a a, a community because once you've had the, the issues, yeah. the, 
you can't just hear them because that's a big issue. You yeah. you have to actually do something about them. Now, somebody out there sitting there and going, but this Ian guy is <laughs> obviously I mean, his mind. your credentials are there. You've built an incredible business and it's still yeah. going solid even right up until today and has been in, impacted very little. And somebody is saying to me, now, how do I do this? How do I take what I've received and now start to do something out of it? Because in every crisis, there's an opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so if you can change your own mindset to the belief that you don't know everything, that's the first thing. Because the eye specialists know everything. They think there's nothing you can teach them. If you can say to yourself, okay, let me understand what's really going on here. Let me find out. Let me have the, the courage to get the feedback and let people tell me why they don't think I'm a great leader or what can I do to change, etc. If you can just open yourself and make yourself a bit more vulnerable, they say, you need to be vulnerable here and allow people to, to, to share their proper views. That's, that's the first step. So as I say, you can't change anything until you've changed yourself. It's really absolutely critical. So if, if you look at all of these things here, you're talking about the chaos. When you build a community, you start out with what we call the, with what we call the pseudo community. Pseudo community is a fake community. It's fake because people are not speaking. They're quiet, and then they, but they will talk behind the back and they'll talk here and talk there, but they won't talk openly. So that's like a, a, a false sense of, of, of safety. Because there's no noise, and, 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 and the good day is judged by how little controversy or, or fighting or arguing or, or is a, a false sense, accusatory way or blaming and finger pointing, but saying, listen, I'd like you to know that when you talk to me, I sometimes get, can we have a chat about this? Can I help you understand why? And so we get into the chaos phase, because then people are now talking to each other, and there's a lot of discomfort. Take him out of the comfort zone. If you have the courage to keep going through that chaos phase, then you get to the letting go phase. And that's a very powerful process. That's when you start to overcome your blockers, whether it's your ego, your fears, and, and all of those things that, that we have. Fear is a huge problem in, in, in life and in business. Your self-doubt. When you start to overcome those things and you understand where they came from in the first place, because often we don't even think about it, but it came from either your parents or your upbringing, your socio environment, you start to overcome those blockers and then you, and you start to understand the need for change. And you move out of your comfort zone. Nothing ever changes in the comfort zone. And it only, only changes when you get out of the comfort zone into the discomfort. And that's when change takes place. And so we're asking people in this country to move out of their comfort zones, to move out of these long-suffering beliefs that they just can't change, which I call paradigm paralysis. You can't see the need for change. Then ultimately, if you can let go of these things, let go of the belief that you know, one group is better than another, let go of that. And just open your mind to, to a new life, a new world view. And then eventually you get to true community where you can really have respect and trust and build those things 
and create that place of safety where people can speak freely but without fear and could do all those things and then if you get that right you get the sense of belonging and with the sense of belonging comes the common purpose which is the service and with that we can deliver obsessive great customer service that's the process that we want to be going through and i can see the people out there rolling their eyes in my pseudo community makes money <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there yeah, playing devil's yeah, advocate. Yeah, yes. My zero community makes money. Yes. You know, my bonuses in the year before has been very decent and, and, yeah, and all sorts of yes. other things. And everybody's happy here, you know. Yeah. That's, that's what they're saying. It's like, why do you want to start this dust? Um, and what is the unique value proposition that then says to me, I have to go into the spiral let go and then build a true community. Yeah. What is the value that I can actually get out of this? Because it makes money as it is right now. So if, if you're looking at it from the point of view of the business makes money, the question is for who? Makes money for you because you are the owner? Or is everybody sharing in your wealth with you? Because if you're making money for you, then I don't think you've got a great business. Because at some point in time, your people are going to say, no, no, no. All the money that we make goes to him. Well, why would I want to work hard? Why would I want to be productive to make him rich? No ways. That's not how it works. So, so making money is one thing. And if everybody's happy, well, then that's great. Then they don't need the culture needing. But I, I don't know too many businesses like that. I haven't come across a business where everyone is delighted and very happy and sharing the wealth and everyone, everything is good. So it, it's it's... You know, you have to understand that I, I think the key to all of this is that we as South Africans need to understand that our responsibility beyond the narrow profit objectives is to uplift the country. That's, what, that's, why we should, that's what we should be focusing on. Because the country's in a mess. Nobody needs to be told that. We know. The country's in a mess. What is our moral obligation to try and lift this country. Some people say, but, but now why don't you just leave and go overseas? I say, no, no I've got a job to do here. We, we have to find a way to, to get people to shift their mindset to the point where I'm not only making money for this company and for shareholders and for myself, but I'm here to help uplift this country and to recreate employment, all the employment that has been lost. So if, if I make money, what does that mean? I must employ more people, not I must take the money. So, so I know it's, more, it's, a, it's a different viewpoint altogether, but I think our moral obligation you know, is to uplift the country and to create equality. If we cannot do that, I, I shudder to think what that, that inequality gap is going to look like if we fail to, to do something about it. It's just going to get worse. The looting and, and, the, and the unrest is going to get worse. And uh, I don't know what will be achieved. One of the things you say in the book that I was quite intrigued about, because, um, you know, the director of Bob that says if he goes to a course and he learns one thing, that was a good course. Me, if I learn one thing from a book, that was a good uh, a book. Um, you redefine shared value. And you're saying the current notion of, you know, our shared value means we all have to act like we're all the same and yes. not celebrate our diversity. 
that's quite a strong statement then. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely, and this is one thing that I've, back in the 90s when I was with labeling, I was very anti the shared values because that was the popular theme at the time. Let's find the shared values so that we can all move forward together. I don't believe that shared values is the answer. I believe it's nice to have some shared values, but we have some natural shared values. We all, you know, we want to have happy families. We want to raise our children. You know, everybody, regardless of who you are, there are some shared values. But that is not going to take our country forward. What's going to take the country forward is when we start to deal with the differences and the problems and the, and the polarization that has been created. That's what we, we have to be focusing on. So shared values for me is a, a quick fix, um, sweep stuff under the carpet approach to, to trying to pretend that we're all the same. It's like assimilation. You know, the dominant culture of an organization wants the people coming in or, or working there to be assimilated into that culture. There lies the problem. So, so now we have a, a white male culture in the business, okay, and now we want all the other people to behave like white males. So we say, you've got to talk like us, you've got to look like us, you've got to think like us. I mean, I, one of my clients, I went to them and I said, why are there no black people here in, in your management structures? Was there like a, a transport problem when, when we had the, I mean, where are they? He said, no, no. He says, we can't find any that think like us. And I said, no, we, we have a big problem here. If you want to make people think like you, that is the exact opposite of what we want to achieve in South Africa. We want to, as you say, celebrate the diversity, allow people to be what they are. I mean, I, I come across many black people in companies that say, you know, I'm really trying to change my accent. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Because then I think I'll fit in better. That's rubbish. I say, listen, man, you must own your accent. That's your accent. <laughs> Don't change it to make someone else happy or to feel that you fit in. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, we hear human resource people coming out of meetings and say, we've got to employ that woman. Hey, she speaks perfect English. So I'd say, but what happens if she, can't, if she can't think straight? She might be able to speak English well, but she might not be a, a good... A lot of them. Yeah, plenty of them. That's so, good yeah, English, but they can't think straight. Yeah, they can't think straight. So, so it's, it's what happens. It's the whole process of assimilation, of trying to, to get people to fit into a culture. And what we need to do is we need to create the culture that accommodates the people. It's the opposite, exactly. Turn it upside down. Don't force people to be like you. Create an, an environment where everybody can be themselves and be proud of who they are and to make that contribution in the business, which we know they can. And so it's, again, just about everything in the book turns things <laughs> upside down. Yeah, and, and I think let's, what is the, let's clarify that. You're not saying shared value is wrong. You're saying we've implemented the wrong version of shared value. Yes, yeah. Because the, the, the book in itself talks about shared value. And yes. shared value in itself, it's when everybody makes money to be able to empower everybody. Um, and that's true shared value. Not yeah. the shared value where some other culture must disappear right. and therefore because right. we have all the same values, then that's shared value. And I sure. think that's what had been building in the past. But the new movement that is we, we are now implementing, and ultimately, I mean, for us, we've developed our own purposes and organization, yeah. and we have our values, yeah. and, and, and the shared value is 
the common purpose to which we, that, to which we drive uh, right. the, the, the intent. So when we're saying to somebody we transform spaces, people, and the economy through mobility, yeah. then you are able to see that, that this is yeah. the, the shared purpose of why these people gather yes. together every day, be it virtual or being together. Yeah. Yeah. But Ian, I'm sitting there and going, Ian, man, I've just learned about employment equity. Yeah. He comes here with <laughs> this culture nearing business. And in the middle of all of that, I've just learned to be able to just simply pick up the phone and call Martha and say, Martha, how are you doing today? I'm not, I'm not even comfortable about it. And mm. now you're saying to me, no, but that's the right way to go. Because mm. COVID in itself has trusted us. Smack bang in the middle of what you're asking yeah. us to do in this book. Yeah, no, it's, it's a difficult time. But, but employment equity is absolutely critical if we're ever going to create any kind of, a, of, a, of an equal country here because the redressing of the imbalances. And I know some, I have big arguments with people about employment equity. And they say, no, it's not right, it's not fair, look what you've done, it's reverse racism. Etc. Etc. And I said, no, no, no. This has nothing to do with reverse racism. This is to do with redressing an imbalance that needs to be addressed. The fact that employment equity hasn't worked out as well as we would have liked it is, is a pity. You know, and there's been a wasted opportunities there. But the the principle of black economic empowerment, in my view, is absolutely correct. We need to do that, and and white people need to understand that they must compromise. It. It doesn't mean they must now give, you know, people say, right, must I give my house away now and my car? I say, no, no, we don't have to do that. All you've got to do is understand that we, if we don't uplift people, the consequences are too ghastly to contemplate. We, we need to give everybody a chance to be able to participate in the economy. And those big companies that have been laying off people, that really, that gets me, you know. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we saw some of these large corporations laying off people. Now, what does that do? It's just adding to, to, the, to, the, to the disaster of unemployment in this country. 70% of the youth is unemployed. And we're just laying off people because we're trying to keep our shareholder profits. Okay. Now, for a small company, you can't help it. You have to do that to survive. But for the large corporations, they can survive if they keep people on for a while. So for a couple of years, let the shareholders be patient. Let them wait a little bit. Let's keep the people employed. Because not only is unemployment a problem, but it also affects the, the, the buying power of the community to keep businesses alive. If nobody's earning any money, how, who's going to be buying the products and the services in this country? So I believe that it should be absolutely critical to not get rid of people, as, as difficult as that may be. That's another thing we're trying to do, something opposite. Keep the people, because that's sustainability that you can afford to do. You can afford it as a big organization. Allow the people to stay employed, and, and, and at least through the COVID system, so that when we come out of it, we still, we, people are working, and they're, they're earning money, and maybe the shareholders got a bit less this time. Ian, but we've gone through that we've laid people off and you know one of the the the, the, the eye-opening things in order they call it in in, in um, one of the books that i had reviewed here um the author says we don't realize that one of the people who've had it rough probably twice or three times 
is the current crop of youngsters who are graduates who actually arrive into the market in probably 2007, 2008. Because they were hit then. Yes. And we laid them off. Yes, that's right. And we tried to ride the wave. The World yeah. Cup sort of yes. propped us up a little bit. And then mm. immediately after that, we dipped down again and mm. we went into another uh, set of retrenchments. Yeah. Um, I used to be a, a, what do they call it, a board director of a multinational consulting yeah. company. Yeah. Uh, by the third one, uh, my heart could not be in it. Yes. Because we were driving exactly that. It was the mothership said, you're not making money and mm. your mm. overheads are too high. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a $2 billion uh, global company. And they were not even below the $2 billion uh, uh, mark at the point when they were looking for more retrenchments and more retrenchments. It's a global phenomenon, and, and everybody is asking for it. And then now, the second time, COVID comes. The same group of people are now trying to rebuild their careers. Remember, they've been knocked once and knocked. <laughs> they get smacked again. What kind of, you know, and, and, and remember you've got the eye specialist there mm. who you've raised to, what do they call it? And, and so there's one thing about raising new leaders, but we already have a, an, an existing challenge. Mm, yeah. and, and, and there's these youngsters that now, how do we create entrepreneurs like you when we worry about the, I might get retrenched tomorrow kind yeah. of a thing? Yeah. But what is your thought on that? Yeah, look, I, I mean... You know, retrenching people when you don't have to financially, to me, is a sin. Really, it's a sin. Because because what are we doing to the economy? What are we doing to the opportunities of these people to, to survive and to sustain themselves? So then we, we're just adding to the to the woes. And we're adding to the, to the negativity. We're adding to the possibility of more unrest. And because people will eventually get sick and tired of having nothing can't blame them. You know, you look back at the revolution, the Russian revolution, a few people had all the wealth and the general population had nothing. They said, it's enough. We're going to take this thing now. The French revolution was the same thing. We, we're just stimulating this and it worries me a lot. And, and, and why? Because of greed. It's all about greed. It's the shareholders want more and more and more. When is it enough? When is it enough, I ask myself? Well, we will find out at some point in time. I mean, the, the, the recent uh, yeah. uh, political unrest yes. did show us is all you need is just the match. You just need something to light it up. And it can go up in a big kaboom. And, and, yeah. and, and it mm. did go up. And, and we, we never thought in our lifetime we'll actually see, see that. Um, but it has happened, and, and you, you, it, it's, we don't need an example mm. from anywhere else. We've had it happen. Now, you're passionate about customer service. Yes. Um, and I've used one of the stores that you used to own, and, um, it's, it, it, and it doesn't matter where you go. It's, I could be in something, and I say, mm. let me pop in into a survey there and mm. do whatever I want to do. Or I'd, I'd be in Mall of Africa, which was one of the new ones that I had been to uh, when it mm. first opened. And, and at some point, I said, no, but I want to test this for me. That was it really uh, mm. just magically appeared because these people I knew, they didn't come from somewhere else. <laughs> now, first it came from the Kmart days. And then, what do they call it? Then when you went into Labour Link. Um, and 
was there ever a point where the naysayers, the people that says, but w there might be abuse in this thing? Yeah. So, you know, we, we have a, a thing that we had, a thing at Sorbet, I'm sure they still Please. have it today, is that if you're not happy with your treatment, you don't have to pay. Now, that has never that been seen. Yeah. Um, and so people said, this is crazy. Everyone is going to abuse this thing and nobody's going to pay for their treatment. When I left Sorbet, we were doing about 400,000 treatments a month uh, across the group, across the country. Of that, maybe 100 people would get refunded for a, an unsatisfactory treatment. That is point naught, naught, naught something. So it was overwhelmed by, you know, the, that, that part of the negativity around abuse of our of our system was completely overwhelmed by the numbers that, uh, that, that we're not claiming money back. So I, I've always believed that, you know, that at the end of the day, if you want to be successful, you've got to go way beyond the norm to serve your customers and to make them feel that they are special and that they come back. Just the purpose alone of a beauty salon. Why, why do people go to beauty salon? Because they want to feel good. That's all. You, you went to, to, to Sorbet Man maybe because you wanted to come out feeling good. You know, and that's exactly what it is. So we were not selling treatments or products. We were selling a feeling. That's what you're selling. When you work out what your purpose is, the purpose should always be how are you going to make your customers feel? What are they going to feel when they experience your product or your service? And so that feeling, we called it get that feeling. Yeah. We didn't say what the feeling was, but the feeling was about feeling good, coming out of a salon feeling better than when you went in and, and coming out with a sense of self-confidence and self-worth and some self-esteem, that's what we're selling. So every business needs to work out, how is my customer going to feel when I deliver a great service? Because that's our purpose. But Ian, how do you find, in this case, you used to call it the soul of, of survey. Yes. How do you find that soul of your business when you don't actually, you cannot define that? I mean, to you it was very simple. You, you want to give the person a feeling. Yes. Uh, you want to get them to feel great about what they have. Mm. A lot of businesses sell products. Yeah. And they, 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 they don't have, or maybe product is, is a very loose way. They don't actually have the ultimate product that the, um, the customer takes away. And in your consulting, how many businesses do you meet? Do you look at them and you go... You guys don't know what you're selling. Yeah. Well, that's just the thing. You know, it, it, it's very often the case. We, you know, we did an exercise with a bank once some time ago, uh, and we said, what is your purpose? What are you guys selling? And, and they said, no, we, our, our purpose is to be the, the best uh, technical bank in the world or in South Africa, and we, we need to be ahead of the other banks and this and that. And, and we said, but no, what, what about the customer? And, and then somebody said, you know what? We sell hope. That's what the bank does. We sell hope. To me, that made a lot of sense. That made a lot of sense. We sell hope. So, so we, we need to understand what is it that we're actually selling. Uh, and, and that feeling that the customer has as a result of our service is what should be driving us. And then everyone needs to be aligned. And that should be the common purpose. 
because if we are all thinking, all coming to work for the same reason, then we have an opportunity to help the customer achieve that feeling that, that they are being really looked after beyond their own expectations. You guys have gone above and beyond. I mean, you've replaced products where somebody has walked in and the can is almost, <laughs> the tube is almost finished and you've said, no, don't worry. I mean, the maths of this thing, you, you, you know, you speak about it in the book about, yeah. you know, uh, the ones I've lost in, as compared to everything. It's just incredible. I yeah. mean, I, yeah. I, I, I had never thought it in that sense, but now that I understand the maths, yeah. It makes real sense. Yeah, because you know, when you are giving a refund, that is not a refund. It's an investment. It's an investment in the long-term viability of that customer. So when somebody comes in and says, "Look, you know, this stuff is not working anymore. Yes. Look at my face. It's no good. I want my I want my money back, and that's what only a little bit left." Uh, and and uh, most most salons would say, you know. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, you come here after six months, you tell me the thing's not working, there's nothing left, you've used it all, and now you want me to take it back and give you the money for that. And, and so most people think you're crazy. But we say, yeah, fine, no problem. Just make sure you sign our loyalty program because we work out the average loyalty member spends about 5,000 Rand a year with us. Over five years, if we look after them, that's 25,000. This thing's going to cost us 300 rand. We give back 300 rand, and we look to build the 25,000. That is a small investment. It's not a refund. And so it's, again, it's the shift, the change of mindset that has created that. And the attitude of the people, the attitude. You know, sometimes you walk into a supermarket, and there's a lady behind the cash desk there, and she's looking like very sad, you know. And, and you wonder, did she, what, what happened, you know? And I say, I, I go and ask them. I say, are you okay? And they say, what? I said, no, are you, are you feeling all right? Said, what, do you, what do you mean? I said, are you happy? She said, of course I'm happy. So I say, if you're happy, tell your face. <laughs> if you're happy, tell your face. Because we can also see that you're happy. And, and that will brighten up everything around you. So, if I look at the one thing, the one thing that was probably the most, uh, or the biggest factor in our success at Sorbet, was the attitude of our people. So you can deliver great service from a technical point of view, and you can sell great products, but you've got to deliver that with the attitude that is going to bring people back, and that they're going to talk about you. And, and that, was our, that was our competitive advantage and allowed us to be successful. Because, you know, I, I would often walk, I'd maybe be at the airport and someone would stop me and say, hey, are you that sorbet guy? So, yes. so, so I say, yes, not quite sure what they're going to say. So kind of, I'm almost protecting myself. And they say, you know, they don't, they don't say to me, Jesus, no, I love your brand or you yeah. built a great business. They don't say that. What do they say? I love Simpiwe in Oakland. Yes. She is superb. And I just want to tell you how great she is, and that's why I keep going back. And I said, but why do you love her? She says, because of the attitude. She's just warm and loving, and she's there for me. And we talk and we chat, and we have, we've built a relationship over the years. 
and said, and I realized how powerful that was, which prompted me to write this second book, uh, The Soul of Sorbet, mm. because those stories were coming out all over the place, amazing stories. One particular woman had cancer, and she she went. She was going in for a test. She was very nervous, and and she went to her nail technician at Sorbet. She goes there every two weeks. The, the nail technician was her name was Kenzie, mm. and she went in there, and she said, "Listen, I have to go for my scan on Friday. I'm so nervous." And Kenzie said, "Don't worry, we'll pray for you, and you're going to be fine." And everyone in the salon said, "We're wishing you all the best." She went for her scan. It came out that was a bit of a false alarm. Mm. The cancer hadn't come back. First thing she did, she tells her husband, "Listen, please, you know, do me a favour, you know." Just drive past Sorbet on, on the way back. Go in there, ask for Kenzie, and tell Kenzie that that Bev is okay. Mm. She mustn't worry anymore. Now, now, who does that for the nail technician? Never mind. She, that was even before she wanted to tell her sister that she was okay. She wanted to <laughs> tell Kenzie that she mustn't worry anymore. And those that kind of relationship just kind of blew me away completely. And then I realized that something special is happening here. It's funny you say that one of the places where I do groceries, I tend to forget these bags that you buy. So they always give me that look, oh, you don't have the bags again. So <laughs> and it's, as you say, people already start, you know, when you treat your, your, your customers the right way. But with customer service, here we are. And I'm saying to you, we're a South Africa that has uh, promoted a lot of eye specialists. And those eye specialists are chasing targets. And with those targets, uh, I have a refund policy. <laughs> <laughs> the famous refund policy. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I need you to fold these, these three forms. I need a lock of hair for what do they call it? <laughs> for DNA I need, analysis. Yeah, I, need <laughs> I need a urine sample <laughs> and all of that before I give you back your money. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, that's How did we get clinic. here, South Africa, yeah. to be able to... to be because the people who created the customer policies were not customer-focused. Often it's the administration or the accountants. They, they're trying to create policies to save the company money, not to look after the customer. So, so policy... I mean, I, I don't know if I can't remember if I had it in the book, but yeah. there, there was one situation where my wife... She bought shoes uh, at, at Edgar's, yes. went at, at Edgar's, and then she went there, and she she couldn't decide which one, so she bought two pairs, and she said, "I'm going to bring back the one I don't want." She came back, I was there with her. We went back there, and then we went to the counter, and we got the box, we got everything, we got the slip. Hey, we we sorted, you know. We can we go over to the to the guy. There's a young man standing behind the counter. And he starts ringing up, everything is fine. He has my slip, I want a refund for this, that I, the box of shoes that I didn't wear. Yeah. And halfway through, I can see his facial expression is changing. He says, oh, he's looking a bit worried. So I say, now, what's wrong now? He says, sir, I, there's a problem here. I said, what's that? He said, when you bought these shoes, they were 1,200 rand, a pair of shoes. But now they've been marked down to 800 rand. You see? And the, my system will not allow me to refund you the full 1200 I can only refund you 800 
even though you paid 1200 The system won't allow me to do it. So I said, no, but you, are you joking? He said, no, I'm not allowed to joke. I said, what, what, this is rubbish, how can you do this? So I said to him, I'll tell you what we're going to do, because there was a big sign above there that says customer service. Yes. I said, bring me a ladder, please, a step ladder. He says, what? <laughs> He says, where, where, where do you want a step ladder? I said, I want to take that sign down. I want you to get up there. Take the sign down. You got the wrong sign up there. There's no customer service going on here. And then I'm going to, while you're busy bringing the sign down, I'm going to write a new sign here that says system problems. You put it up there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he started to get in there. He thought I was losing my mind. So he called the supervisor. The supervisor came, said the same story. I said, who, who wrote this policy? He said, I don't know. This policy has been here for years. I said, well, can you go and find him? So he said, no, I don't, I don't, know. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. I said, well, I, I need to find out the person who wrote a policy that says the system is more important than the customer. That's the bottom line. And eventually they gave me like a gift card of 400 rand to make up the difference. But still, a policy... Sometimes we put into our, into our customer policies things that are not good for the customer. That is like complete insanity. Why would you do that? There shouldn't be any rules. We, we have a, a, a no rules policy. Even if it's damaged, half used, it's not your, your vibe anymore, or you want to use the money for movies instead, it doesn't matter. Come, bring back anything especially your business. Bring back your business. That's what we want. Everything else doesn't matter. Man, I wish we could all learn that. I think it's, it's what do they call it? You try getting a refund from anybody. Uh, it's one of the most intriguing. Sometimes I just do it for, for what do they call it? For the sheer entertainment of it. <laughs> Just for the sheer yeah, entertainment of it. Exactly. Uh, you must bring a lot of patience <laughs> with you when you come. You it's must have the time to do it. A full bag of patience. Yeah. A full bag of patience and you must have, you know, uh, rules of time for you to stand around and then that form gets signed, that somebody comes yeah, in yeah, and signs yeah. off. And then I'm going to look for my supervisor. Yes. In a, um, and then they call him out and then he's somewhere across the store mm. and you're waiting around and... Um, the number of times I've been in stores where I had to go myself and find the supervisor myself, uh, it's, it's amazing. So yes. um, it, it's <laughs> intriguing that you, you talk about this in, in, in this manner. But here we are, we're sitting here and talking about customer service. Uh -huh. And you've got a lot of businesses that are, are saying, we're just barely in making it our nose up, we're getting our nose above the water. And you asking me to culture to <laughs> to bring on customer service that yeah. is unrivaled, and um, you yeah. know, and you know, re uh, uh, remap my leadership and all sorts of other things. Now, there's COVID; it is here, and it's nothing I can do about it. Now, I mean, that's a, a real We don't expect people to obviously just throw everything out the window and do all these things. But I, th I think what's important is a lot of it doesn't require much investment. You know, it doesn't cost you anything to change your mind. Change your mind, never mind. That, that's not an investment. 
It doesn't cost anything. It comes free of charge. Open your mind to a new way of thinking, a new way of doing business, a new way of serving your customers. Make sure that the customer journey, every single element of the journey, is 100% positive. When they phone, when they email, how long are you taking to respond to emails? How are the, each little thing must be 100% fine so that it creates an overall positive customer journey. And, and the, the amount of detail that you can look into there is st staggering because there's so much that you can do. Just pay attention. And again, that doesn't cost money. You know, it's just changing the way you do things and opening your mind. That's what the touch points are there, and we all are well aware of the touch points. Mm -hmm. But you then built something out of that and created the sub-touch points. Yeah. Only Ian can create sub-touch points. <laughs> <laughs> sub-touch points. But I, I think it's, it's maybe it's my analytical mind. And as I was looking at the diagram, it, it, it was very intriguing to have... And, and, and you don't show it as being a problem, but you just show it as part of our touch points, you know? The idea of a cheat mark, saving a water they call it. It's so minute a detail. Um, in, in, in your experience, how many times do people just forget those things? Yeah, all the time. I think it's happening all the time. And as a, so we use it. Interesting you bring up the chip mug, because yeah. the chip mug was our, like, flag bearer. We, we, we used to use that a lot to, to describe the importance of the detail. That, that there's no detail too small to worry about. So if you have been given a fantastic treatment, service, you're very happy with everything, and then you come and somebody brings you a coffee in a chip mug, now that can destroy that whole customer journey. Just like that alone, because they're saying, well, if they give me a, a chip mug, there must be something wrong here. So we get everybody to take responsibility for their own touch point and make sure that the detail is taken care of. It's even whether it's the toilet paper in the toilet, whether it's the music that's on, whether it's the air conditioning, there's millions, hundreds and hundreds of things that we need to be focused on. And we, we call it the, you know, the detail, the retail is detail. You, you need to take care of the detail. Every single item must have the price on it. Nobody wants to pick up a product and not see a price. They don't like that. They, they want to know what it is. They don't want to go to the counter and then find out when they've asked them that, that it's too much money they can't afford. That's embarrassing. So every single item must be priced. Every, it must be laid out. We mustn't find one item hidden behind another one so that you can't see it. It's just, you know, I, I used to walk around that supermarket. That was the name that we changed Kmart to. And, and we used to walk around and think, and if, if we ever found a product that was hidden behind another one, we would all stand there and give it a minute's silence so that, <laughs> so that that product could rest in peace because yes. it was dead there. Yeah. Was, there was no way on no earth that anyone's ever going to see that thing or buy it. It's dead. So we would stand there and get everyone to bow their heads and say a little bit of a prayer for, the, for that thing to rest in peace. So every detail, every single detail. So in essence, the, 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 the biggest challenge you, you, you have had and, and, and in, in, in all of this is for us to be able to say, but how do you actually develop this sense of minute detailing? 
about explaining to people the importance of that customer journey and the, and the, the customer experience and what it is that we're trying to achieve. Because if we are trying to get people to feel good about themselves, then every little detail is counting towards that. It's all aligned with that purpose in mind. And that's, that's what we need to be doing. Now, with all of that understanding, and I, I still go back to the issue of COVID and the challenges that we've had so far, yes. and, 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 and all of that, it's, it's about us being able to say, how do we find the customer experience in the middle of all of this? Because it's, yeah. it's, we're sitting with a very, very challenging experience. Um, and, and how do we... Yes. How do we move towards what they call it, towards us making sure that uh, we can be able to develop beyond the COVID uh, yeah. constraints? Yes. Look, you know, I mean, COVID, just what, what it does is it just pours more attention on the importance of the customer journey. Because people, we, we are struggling to deliver the customer journey, but we, if we have any sense of, of feeling or empathy for the customer, they also struggling. And this is the time to impress them. This is the time to go beyond what you would normally do to make sure that the customer is happy. Because when it comes, when we come out of COVID, which we will do at some point in time, or at least mainly, we, we, we want those people to remember us, that we had their backs when things were down. You know, people, helping people out. Like I, I work with, with one insurance company, insurance broker. They, they, they recognized that people couldn't pay their premiums during COVID. It was very difficult. So they still allowed them to keep the cover, and they covered it themselves. They said, this is a time when you need us. And you have no idea the impact that that has on the customer. And says, you know, these guys really are interested in our well-being, not just in our money. And so that's... You've got to go beyond just the money. That's the key. There's a lot of things out there in the world that go beyond the money. Show people that you truly care about them. And, and, and genuinely so, not, not in a false way, but genuinely care about them. You know? and, and, and when you in a restaurant, show people that you want to serve them. These days, the service in restaurants sometimes is so bad that, that when I book a table, I say, can I get a table near a waiter, please? <laughs> <laughs> That's an intriguing one. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we, for me, the, 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 the big issue that sits out there and mm. we, we, we're looking at, and, and uh, you know, I, I lived in England for a while. Yes. Uh, there used to be a joke there, sorry, no service, we're British. And for me, I think it's, it's <laughs> so one, it's COVID has had its own impact. And as you rightfully has raised it, um, we've seen it through the restaurant industry. Um, it's, mm. South Africa has incredible restaurant yeah. uh, service. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you and with me having traveled quite a lot. Um, and you have traveled quite a lot. You know very well. You, you remember the warm feeling you get from going to particular restaurants here. And it's not all of them, but a lot of them. But you've seen it with other, they call it with COVID. There's a, you know, there's the, beyond the social interaction, 
that is awkward. We're all wearing masks or you can't hear what the, um, the waiter is saying and everything else. It has been a bit, a bit challenging for businesses. And, and I can almost hear a manager out there who says, this Ian doesn't know what we're here in the trenches we're struggling with. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I read a book once about uh, a restaurant owner and, and how he created the service in his business. And he said it was very simple. He talk about the touch point. He used to train the staff to look at the people's eyes. And we said, now why would we look at the eyes? Because he said, their eyes will tell you what, what they're doing. So if they're looking down at their food, they don't need you. They're busy. They're eating. If they're looking to the side, talking to the, to the, to the, um, to the person that's accompanying them, they're busy. When they look up, then you must be there within three seconds because they need you. They look, they're looking. They need some service. Watch the eyes. When the eyes go up, I want you to be there, right there. That's the kind of detail that we're talking about. Now, that's intriguing. That the number of times that you even have to raise your hand. You get <laughs> yes, like you have to wait for you to be able to... <laughs> for people to come. To get in. anybody yes. to come through. It, exactly. It's just been intriguing in order that God. I want to check if we've got some questions there. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it, it's what do they call it? Uh, it? It's just comments that says, man... This is incredible. And somebody has just said, yeah, uh, Ian, you are a people's person, and, you know, uh, this is true wisdom. Uh, that's incredible. Um, and then they're asking, do you do uh, mentoring, um, which is a big issue. Yeah. And I think mm. uh, viewer has just uh, put them the link to the Hatch Institute right. uh, and, 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 and what do they call it, um, right. which then... Uh, would what do they call it? Would then allow me. Um, yeah. So we've got a few questions here. Right. Oh, here's a here's a real South African one, the <laughs> proper one. <laughs> How do you bring uh, change in culture when it's been allowed to grow into a toxic environment for a very long time? Yeah, it's a very good question. <laughs> it, you know, you've got to start somewhere because that's what often happens, and and just. And I'm not quite sure at what stage of business this person is asking the question. But what often happens is that, especially with entrepreneurs, they start a new business. They, they focus very much on trying to get their business concept and the model going. And they don't think about culture until sometime down the line, when they're starting to now hire people, they employ people, business is growing. And then they think, ooh, my, my culture is a problem now because they've allowed it to, to build itself. Right? So what we say to, to people is focus on culture early in your, last, in your lifespan. Okay? And if it's already toxic, we're going to have to sit down, we're going to have to explain people why it needs to change. It, it can be done. There's, no, there's nothing that cannot be done when it's driven with purpose. You know? and, and, and it must come from the top. Because culture never changes from the bottom. It only can be driven from the top. Second question, and I think this is a more a safe space uh, question. Do junior staff have the ability to influence le uh, leadership to adapt, uh, you know, to positive culture? Well, if we have the courage to do that, yes. 
you know, I think it's about being willing to speak up. I mean, obviously, junior staff will be a bit hesitant about challenging the boss. But if there's a safe space, then that's what we need to do. You know, let me tell you a story. There's this guy who wrote a book, a recent book called uh, The Heart of Business, fantastic book. Um, his name is Hubert Jolly, and he tells a quick story there. He says he was sitting in, 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 his, uh, in the board meeting and they had a couple of invitees to the board meeting, junior people that needed to make a presentation. And he encourages people to speak up. That's his whole thing yeah. in culture. So, so after the meeting, he gets an email from one of the juniors to say to him, I was unhappy with the way you spoke to one of your female colleagues, he, she says. I thought that you were rude and, and, and it was unnecessary the way you spoke. Now, this is the CEO, is a young woman writing an email complaining about the way he spoke to one of his female colleagues. He responded to her. He said, thank you so much for pointing that out. I aim to work on that and I just want to tell you that you have a big future in this company. Wow. That, that is incredible, that. <laughs> That's the kind of leadership we're talking about, encouraging that feedback and accepting it and making the changes. Mm. Now, this is a personal question in a sense that what are the values that Ian lives by? Because, you know, everybody is sitting, man, this is an incredible business leader, but it's got to be driven from somewhere within person needs to have their own purpose in life. Okay. And for me, my purpose is to inspire people to make a positive impact on yes. the world. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what it is. I, I try to inspire. I want, I want other people to go out there and to make a, an impact and, and to do something positive to change and to create this new country that we all so desperately need. So inspiration is what drives me, basically, and how to inspire people. And, and I've, you know, the set of values is all, it, it's always about people. It, everything is about people first, and results and rewards and money second. What message do you have for the youth that would like to become inspiring leaders like yourself? Yeah, I, th I think you need to, to be driven. You need to be um, hardworking, that's for sure. The, the, there's no substitute for, for hard work and drive. But I think also at the same time, you need to grow into a person that is not an eye specialist. Yeah. You put other people first in your life, in your work, everywhere. Because when you are always taking instead of giving, then things go bad. You know, the eye specialists always take more than they give. The contributors are the people who give more than they take. They are the ones who are out there to serve. So if you want to be successful in life, become a contributor, not a taker. Um, there's a question here. How do you rebrand the space that has been known to be punitive to dissidents, uh, to the one that, you know, enables the people to speak up? I'm not sure that I understand the question. So how, how do you, so a, 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 a place that had been, you know, 
you don't speak up. If you speak yes. up, then you you're in trouble. Yeah. You're in trouble. And how do you then create a safe space? Okay, it's yes. just about changing the leadership. And the, yeah, because that's all about leadership. If yes. Leadership is responsible for creating the space. If they cannot change themselves or change their mindset or overcome their, their blockers, then that's not going to change. So it's all about getting the leaders to change their, the way they, they lead people and to create that place of safety and encourage feedback rather than to intimidate those who speak up. Somebody's been having good fun here. He's saying, how's the case study in the last chapter of your book going so far? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, say so they've been reading it. That's with the iCapital group. Yes. It's going very well. In fact, I'm, I'm busy now. In fact, t tomorrow, funny enough, I'm busy negotiating with them for next year already. So this is now a three-year project that we carry on. So, it's, you know, cultureering is not a, an event. It's a yes. journey. Yeah. You are but one, just one individual. Now, as you're building your business, the IIT Institute, um, how are you going about in, you know, building new leaders? And then this question comes to where, how do you then, do you do individual coaching? And I do a lot of individual coaching. In yes. fact, at the moment, I do more individual coaching than anything else. So all of the clients that I work with, their leadership teams, every one of them is, going, is having life coaching with me. So it's self-development coaching. Uh, and and leadership coaching, so on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Yeah. That, that's what we do. So I do a lot of that. And I believe that it's been very effective in creating leaders who can look at themselves and overcome their blockers and change themselves, transform themselves into these culture-driven leaders. Here's a question. We've just launched our culture as an organization. How could we embed it and influence everything that we do in business? As I said to you, we've got a new purpose. We've got our yes. um, values and... Okay. Yeah. Well, well, it's very good that you've got the values and the purpose already. That's yes. the first thing. Now, now you have to get everybody aligned behind that purpose and explain why purpose is important and explain why the values are important. Because a lot of companies have values, but they don't live the values. They have them up on the wall. It looks like a nice picture there. They say, we, we don't believe, no, we never discriminate. We never do this. We're all wonderful. And yet it doesn't materialize. So if you're going to have values, you must live the values. So every single person in the organization needs to know those values off by heart and what do they mean and how do we live them. Because often your values will test you because... Say, for example, one of your values is integrity. There will be a time when you get tested that you, you either do the right thing or you save money because doing the right thing will cost you money. And then you make that choice. Now, if you decide to save money and you don't do the right thing, then you must take your values and throw them in the toilet because then there's a waste of time, total waste of time. You, you, not, you need to live them or not have them at all. Now, one of the big challenges that one finds is that, yes. you know, it's easy to find a, a culture here. Mm. And probably somebody, you know, what they call it, in the business will, you know, will volunteer from a leadership perspective. So either somebody genuinely feels what must be done and they yeah. will and see the value of it and they will do that. Yeah. 
But the cultivators are a bit of a different issue. <laughs> and, and maybe, you know, and I'm asking from a personal perspective, as somebody has said, we're going through the journey at the current yeah. moment. Finding people who are there, or as we call them now, influencers. Influencers. Yes, yes. in the business. And, yeah. and you know, yeah. I like, I prefer the, uh, you know, the cultivator <laughs> uh, term, but, <laughs> well. So, so the cultivator is, is equivalent to the, to the influencer in social media. You yes. get your social media influencers and, and the cultivator is the equivalent internally. So it's a person who has a positive attitude, who b understands and believes in the purpose and the values and is willing to share that enthusiasm and to inspire people that they work with. So it's an internally driven uh, system of cultureers and cultivators because you know, from an outside perspective, you, you can't, as a, as a coaching business or a consulting business, always be running things on behalf of the company. They've got to start taking over that themselves. So we create a cultureering committee with cultureers that are driving the thing internally. And then the cultivators are people who are working in the departments and are busy influencing people within to be more focused on customer service, on purpose, on values, and those things. So, so they are there to influence and inspire, improved service, better attitudes, and the right way of thinking. Strangely enough, Ian, this is the model we've always used to adopt new yes. technologies. Mm. Why do you think it's so hard for us to do it with culture? Yeah, because you see, I think a lot of people believe that culture doesn't have a direct impact on the bottom line. They think it's a soft, fuzzy, wuzzy thing that you, 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 you tick the box, you call HR in, you say, come, come and do culture work, and then you tick that box, okay, we've done that now. Um, but, it, but now we focus on the money again, you see. And so when people say to me, how does culture impact on the bottom line? My answer to that is culture is the bottom line. If you don't have a strong culture, your bottom line is never going to be great. So if you, that's... That's the thing. We have to change the mindset to to culture is just about human resources and, and the sideline issue. Mm -hmm. To culture is an integral part of the strategy of the business, and is in fact the bottom line in terms of of success for you. Somebody has just said that's really profound, and uh, it's always good to see these messages coming through, Ian. Before I do, you know, mm. I have to pay the bills and <laughs> do my thank yous. <laughs> yeah. What is your one last thought? And, and I want you to frame it within how do we not only, you know, create people like Ian in the future, but how do we create this school that then yes. enables us to grow the, the new or, or the South Africa that we want? I, I think there's only one fundamental principle that I always believe in, and that is that the purpose of work and the purpose of life is to serve other people. And if we can get that right, if we can truly put other people first, if we can truly create opportunities and upliftment for the, for the majority of our people and create some sort of equality in this country where everybody 
can participate freely in the economy and can grow. That's, that's my dream for South Africa. Uh, it's, some people say it's a crazy dream, but I'm not going to stop dreaming at this stage. So it's really about serving, putting people first. On that note of Ian's African dream, <laughs> it's been a riveting experience. Uh, the oh, the two you. hours went by so quickly. Uh, me and you, Ian, I think we can talk oh, until you. the cows come home. <laughs> exactly. And they are actually coming home as they are right now. <laughs> right. All that is left is, what do they call it? Uh, somebody says, you know, uh, I, am, I am inspired. You know, uh, thank you for leading and all of that. And, and all that is, in fact, it, uh, is left is, Thank you for what they call it for, for your time. And first and foremost, thank you for the book. It's a, it, a lot of people don't understand what it takes to write a book. <laughs> and you, yes. you know, you've written a second one, and we look forward to hosting you again. But thank you for making the time, and thank you for what they call it for the book in itself. Thank you for your experience, thank and you. Uh, thank yeah. you for building so many for me and my. And, <laughs> and, uh, we we haven't even thanked you for that. So thank you for being here, and ultimately, from my end. Um, Thank you to the publishers uh, yeah. for you know making the book available to us um, and right. to uh, to viewer for always putting together an incredible lineup for us and engaging and running the background work that gets done with all of that. Uh, the team that works with viewer, uh, they are incredible and the work that they do to be able to get us to this point where I'm sitting here, I'm just the guy who just wears the fancy suits and sits in front of the camera. <laughs> There's a whole lot of people that do the work. All I have to do is just read the book. Um, but to the communications team also, thank you for the time that we've put in. And we know we've had numerous things that you've been doing and we, um, we look forward to the promoting of all of this. And to the CEO and for leading us in this direction and allowing us to be able to have this level of freedom. And the board members that I can see have joined us online. Um, thank you for making the time. It's part of our culture as an organization. As we continue to transform spaces, people and the economy through mobility, it's me, Mutokwa, Mutwasa Rotosa Rotimbane, Klo Ntebele, I thank you. <laughs>